Okay. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Um, happy Easter. Does anybody? Does everybody have uh, an outline? And if they don't, I'm put them on this chair over here. So, thanks for coming to the uh, this, the the Bible study this morning. Uh, especially with the new format, I know that it's kind of difficult to figure out first and second and in the middle. Um, so, we're going to be discussing the resurrection this morning, the historicity of the resurrection, the historical reliability of the, re- the resurrection, the theological importance of the resurrection, why we... I lost my copy. Why we... Uh, why we believe what we believe. And uh, so this is going to be eight, eight weeks where uh, different teachers are going to be exploring the resurrection. Um, some will be focused on individual gospel. Some will be uh, focused on some of Paul's letters. Um, I'm kind of privileged and excited to do the first installment. Um, we are going to look at Mark briefly. I am going to cover uh, Mark a little bit. But the real focus of my talk is going to be on uh, why do we believe that this is a real historical event and how do we uh, defend that position uh, in the face of so much scrutiny. Um, and you're going to get, I mean, the scrutiny is going to come from all angles. Just, just within the world of, uh, of biblical scholarship, uh, there's probably more uh, uh, antagonistic uh, sort of anti-resurrection uh, 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 theological scholarship out there than there is to support it. I mean, there's people, probably more professors and scholars out there who, who've made a career out of studying the Bible who don't actually believe the Bible <laughs> than there are professors who study the Bible and believe the Bible. Um, but uh, if you kind of study, and this has been true in the, in the 19th century and in the 20th century and now the 21st century, uh, but what's really cool is that uh, you know, God has faithfully in each of those kind of centuries raised up incredible uh, biblical scholars uh, who have uh, usually one or two voices could go into a sea of voices and say, no, wait a minute, uh, you don't have this, you're not, you're, not, you're not treating this material correctly, you're not interpreting this material correctly, um, and this is how we're going to sort of faithfully reconstruct this historical narrative, um, both and, and understand the history of it and the theological significance of it. So the outline is very in-depth. I uh, sat down with Matt and thought about, you know, how am I going to teach this well? Because this subject is very complex. I brought some of the books that uh, that I've read, some of them more than once, um, and uh, and the subject of the historicity of the resurrection brings inevitably brings into it lots of different disciplines: philosophy, archaeology, history, theology, um, linguistics. Uh, and you can't really, and I said, okay, well, I'm not going to get into all of that. I'm going to make this really user-friendly, right? So uh, let me, you know, here's some points. I'm going to give them these, like, four or five kind of apologetic points and and make it simple. And then I started writing out, and I'm like, I can't really do that. I can't simply say, hey, guess what, guys? The Gospels are dated early rather than late. Uh, you know, that's it, and let's move on. Like, I, you know, kind of have to talk about that a little bit. So that's why there's a lot of information in here. I'm going to use it as a guide. And obviously you can follow along with it, but I'm not going to kind of spend 10 minutes on trying to get through each one of these points you know, in an in-depth way. Some of them I'll kind of mention and then skirt over. 
um, some of them I'll spend more time on. And uh, so the bold areas kind of outline the little subsections that we're going to focus on. The first is the resurrection, the gospel as literature, the gospels as a literary form, and then the gospel of Mark itself. Um, then we're going to consider uh, Messiah figures in first century uh, Israel, uh, or more broadly, the second temple period. So it does that, that uh, with that, you're going to hear me, I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a word key here. Second temple period, <clears throat> the first temple uh, built by Solomon is destroyed. There's an exile, um, and then out of exile, uh, the Israelites come out of exile, build the second temple. And so when you talk about the second temple period, you're talking about that time in, in, in Israel's history after the, sec- the second temple was built. Uh, sometimes you use it interchangeably the first century, the second temple period. Obviously, the second temple period is longer than just simply uh, 100 years. Um, but we're going to look at Messiah figures in that time period, and then the nature of oral history and hopefully give you an understanding of what uh, oral histories are and to understand that oral histories are integral and important to biblical history. Uh, the Bible didn't just appear, like did, Jesus didn't, you know, was raised from the dead, ascended, and then, oh, then here's the Bible. Okay, that, that, of course, didn't happen. Um, then we're going to look at eyewitness testimony, focusing on Richard Bauckham, who's an, uh, all, there's three scholars that I'm going to talk about a little about today. I think that they're all first rate. I think that they're doing some of the best Scholarship, not only of today, but it may be of, of all time. Uh, uh, Richard Bauckham and, and eyewitness testimony, and how that relates to understanding the resurrection and the historicity of it. N.T. Wright, who N.T. Wright really covers everything, where Bauckham and, and then the third scholar kind of have more focused uh, areas of inquiry. N.T. Wright just says, "I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you everything." And so N.T. Wright, um, uh, we're going to talk about mutation of core Jewish beliefs after the resurrection. How do we explain that? What does it have to do with? Is the resurrection real or not? And then finally, Larry Hurtado, which is a, a lesser-known scholar, but I think it's just first-rate. Um, and he his work has to do with high Christology, and I'll get into what that means, <clears throat> and bi-theism. So bi is a two as opposed to monotheism one, bi-theism in early Christianity. You're going to hear me say... Uh, I'm going to use the term conservative and liberal usually in regard to scholarship, just because as Amer- Americans, that were, those words are, are they're loaded words, but they're catchphrases that I think we understand. So when I say liberal scholar, I'm not talking about the person's core beliefs or morality, their, 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 their political leanings, I'm saying that their scholarship is not in line with conservative, orthodox, Christian thought. Liberal scholars by and large, don't believe in miracles, don't believe Jesus was the Son of God, don't believe he was raised from the dead. Um, and when I say conservative scholars, I'm meaning scholars who do believe that. So there's no confusion when I start throwing out liberal this, liberal that. It's not, I'm not really talking about you know, pop culture and, and politics and things like that. So opening it up with uh, a very famous group of verses from uh, the First Corinthians, Chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because there will be later lessons where they focus almost exclusively on this verse. But I can't think of a better place in the Bible that centers this study. And Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have no hope in this life, only we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul does an excellent job of letting the believer know what the stakes are in regard to the resurrection. Uh, you really can't say it any better than that. This building exists because of the resurrection. We're here because of the resurrection, not because of even more than the virgin birth, more than the life of Jesus, more than the early church fathers, more than anything. The resurrection is a reason why we are here gathered together, why this building even exists in the first place. It was a different church before it was an evangelical church. It has to be. Everything hinges on the resurrection. If Christ is raised from the dead, then we uh, are who we say we are and we believe who we say we believe in. And we're worshiping a God who has uh, condescended to us and saved us. And if the resurrection is not real, then we are all wasting our time. And Paul goes even further says, which people should pity us. <laughs> we, we've wasted our we're wasting our time we're wasting our lives we may even be um, you know teaching uh, something that is borderline immoral if, if, if this isn't true so Paul understands that uh, Jesus is not just somebody who is a really kind man a wise teacher a sagacious uh, we, and again, I'm alluding to some of that liberal scholarship now that says, well, it's okay that, there, of course, there is no resurrection. There are no miracles. That's okay. I'm still a Christian. I still go to a church. I, I think that there's a lot to be gained from studying the man of Jesus. There's a lot to be gained with fellowshipping with other people who uh, also look to Jesus, the man, as an example. Uh, Paul's saying, no, that's, 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 that's baloney. No, there isn't anything to be gained from that. It doesn't really matter. If, he's not, if he has not been raised from the dead, then the whole thing is, is a sham. So those are the stakes, and that is hopefully going to frame why it's important for us to understand why do we believe this, why is it historically reliable. Um, and then there's a little quote here from, uh, this is a, a secular historian, not a, a, a theologian, but is somebody who, in his studies of both history and archaeology, has come across dealing with the Bible, as, and you'll find that if you start to study these things, the Bible, for almost all uh, historians, certainly are all archaeologists who go anywhere near the Near East, uh, the Bible is a, is a major source for them, believing or not. The Bible is, is, a, is, a, is a, viewed as a strong, reliable historical source for all sorts of things. Um, and he writes, I claim to be an historian... My approach to classics is historical, and I tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of ancient history. And that is true, uh, whether you're talking about Plato, whether you're talking about Sophocles, uh, Virgil, uh, and these are names that in the world are, are they're, they're never questioned. They're, they, everyone believes that these people existed, that they wrote the, what they wrote, that they said what they said. And if you were to study this, you would find that the uh, historical evidence for the, the, the manuscript support for uh, these uh, individual works and these individuals doesn't come close. It doesn't even come into the same league uh, for Jesus, for the Bible, for the resurrection, for so on and so forth. So the first section, the resurrection, gospel literature, and the gospel of Mark. 
the Gospels are unique in literary history and represent a completely novel form at the time of their writing. So this is, again, something that we should be thinking about. Look at ancient history. Look at the rest of the Bible. Gospels are unique. They're different from Paul's letters. They're different from anything in the Old Testament. And if we ask ourselves, well, why did, why, why did, why did men sit down to write these? What is it that they're trying to tell us? How are they written? We find that, again, in ancient history, so they're, they're unique. And they are uh, uh, they're, they're resurrection narratives. So these are men who believe that Jesus was God incarnate. Theoretically, if God comes to earth, his birth, his childhood, his adolescence, his, his, his adult life, everything should really be of the utmost importance. It's, you wouldn't say, God is here, but none of that other stuff matters. This is only this one thing matters. That really wouldn't make sense. And yet that is kind of what the Gospels say. They say, no, Jesus was God, but I'm not going to tell you really anything about his, much about his birth, a chapter or so. Nothing about his childhood, teenage years. We're going to talk, there'll be a nice chunk about the, his, his ministry. And then the main event in all four Gospels, the three synoptics and John, is the death, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. That's not by coincidence. That because, that's because those, the men who were writing these Gospels understood this is, uh, this is Jesus' purpose for coming. This is our, now our, becomes our purpose in proclaiming him as Lord, as following him, as calling others in to follow him, to create a community, to create a church, and then to go out into the world and spread that message. It's, it's, we're preaching the death and the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ and not the birth and the life and the childhood. and Because it all matters because it's all, it's all God, right? That's not uh, what the Gospels are. And it's important for us to, to, to take note of that when we're thinking about, it was, was, is the resurrection important? Was it important to the people at that time? Certainly it was. Just look at what they felt they should sit down and write. Um, <clears throat> they're both historical and theological documents. Focus primarily on the resurrection, as I've just said, and they give minimal treatment to other areas of his life. The early acceptance of an empty tomb and resurrection is the true catalyst for the unique literary form taking shape over and above the birth and life of Jesus. So these aren't, the Gospels are not, some, some scholars usually say, well, they're, they're historical biographies. They're not biographies because they don't care so much about a huge chunk of Jesus' life. They are resurrection story, resurrection narrative, resurrection histories, um, resurrection biographies even. And by the way, this is really going to be a sort of a lecture format. Normally I don't do that. I like having back and forth on a lot of questions. Um, I really no way to do that and get all this information in. But nevertheless, if you're saying, oh, I have a question about that, I'm confused, raise your hand, it's a small enough group, um, that would be fine. Um, so accurate dating of the Gospels is paramount in reliable historical Jesus analysis. This is one of those areas I didn't want to spend too much time on, and yet I realize you can't really talk about defending the resurrection. Somebody says to you, well, how do you believe this stuff? How do you believe it? Someone was raised from the dead. You're going to find, if you purport to give that person an answer, that you're going to start bringing in, well, let's look at what the Bible says. You're going to have to grapple with, when was this written, and is that important? And the answer is yes. So I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I will tell you that uh, conservative scholarship dates the Gospel of Mark around AD 60. We believe that Jesus died somewhere around AD 33. 
So do the math. It's 27 years after his death. This is within the lifetime of people who were there, who saw this, who experienced it. Um, Matthew and Luke, maybe 15, 20 years later. John, maybe much later, 80, 90. John was, of course, very, very young when the other apostles were, were older. Um, so that is uh, accepted by all of conservative scholarship, and I would say the vast majority of moderate scholarship, too. And uh, nowadays, uh, we've gotten so good at the, the, uh, dating these things that even liberal scholars uh, will say, okay, you know, uh, that, may, that, that dating may be accurate, but here are all the reasons why I still think that people aren't raised from the dead and things like that. Um, Paul's letters, and we're going to talk a little bit about Paul today. Uh, Paul's first letter, earliest letter that we can date, <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians, probably 80-50, 51, 52 at the latest. <coughs> so now you're talking, thanks, you're talking 20 years uh, after the death uh, um, and resurrection of Jesus. So, uh, And what's important, not just is that it happened 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but that in Paul's letters we already have established what is called a high Christology, uh, a high view and an accepted widespread view of who Jesus was, what he did, that he, that he died, and that he rose again. Historians have to account for that <clears throat> early widespread acceptance. So, why uh, then is dating uh, the Gospels <clears throat> uh, accurately so important? Um, and it comes down to Jewish versus, is the next bullet point, Jewish versus Hel- and Hellenistic traditions. I'm going to use the word Hellenist, Hellenist or Hellenistic because that's the correct scholarly term. What that is referring to uh, is the Greek culture. <coughs> so Alexander the Great, uh, the Greek Empire, the first uh, major empire in Western civilization, leads into the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, culturally speaking, politically speaking, is, uh, is Hellenistic in nature. It's not... Very dis- the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire is not distinct culturally, philosophically. Um, they, they mirror one another very closely. Um, very different, however, from Judaism, from the Jewish way of living and thinking about God um, and interacting with each other as a community, expectation, life and death, family, festival, so on and so forth. It's radically, Judaism, radically different from the Hellenistic world that came to kind of engulf it and surround it. <coughs> So, uh, <clears throat> what uh, liberal scholarship wants to do is say, you know, they start with the presupposition of, well, we know the resurrection didn't happen. We're all reasonable, rational people. People aren't raised from the dead. So their presupposition, their starting point is, whether they would say it or not, sometimes this is even on a subconscious level, the starting point is, well, he, didn't really, he wasn't really raised from the dead. So, given that, how do I explain <clears throat> what I'm seeing here? Because clearly... These people thought that he did. They're speaking as though they did. They thought that he did. So how do we explain that? So one of the things that was very popular in the 19th century biblical scholarship was this idea that the early church was overwhelmingly Greek. That that very quickly after Jesus' death, Paul takes up the mantle of of chief uh, evangelist focuses on Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and founding, you know, whether the church in Ephesus, the church in Thessalonica, the church in Corinth, that the early church was Greek in culture. <clears throat> and what do we find in Greek culture? We find things like hero worship, uh, legend building. This flows right out of 
earliest Greek mythology. And so in Greek cultures, <clears throat> there is a tradition of an oral history, and within that oral history, over time, almost think of it as like an evolutionary process, as stories are told and retold, legend is built, uh, hero status is built. <clears throat> and so, well, how do we explain this sort of very high Christology, and what that means is a high view of Jesus as God and not simply as a man? How do we explain that? Well, we explain that two ways. One, uh, the Gospels were very late. We'll say that the Gospels uh, are dated uh, at the earliest 150 to 180 AD. Uh, you know, the latest Gospel maybe, maybe 200 AD. Now you're talking about centuries, more than a century removed from any eyewitnesses. Um, and not only are they dated at that time, the church, the people who were telling each other these stories were culturally Greek. So that's why we have this very... The, the sort of defined Jesus as God, Jesus as legendary, almost hero-like status, easily, very easily explained. It took on an evolutionary process, 100, 150 years of storytelling, and that's why we get the, 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 the stories that we do. Now, again, I'm not, that, is, that is a book on, on, unto itself. Uh, suffice it to say, conservative solid biblical scholarship over many years has slowly eroded that view. Uh, the, the most liberal Bible scholars might still hold to that, but people who take the field very seriously really no longer do. But that is that you know that sort of uh, spawned a century's worth of biblical scholarship, um, mostly in Europe and Germany. If you've ever heard the term form critics, this is what they sort of built their theology on. <laughs> And so that's why for us, if we want to be Christians in the world today, we want to say, hey, I hold to the resurrection. I think it's real. I think it really happened. I think it's historical. You want to be able to talk a little bit about the stories about the resurrection, so the Gospels, but also Paul. And why do we think they were written, when they were written, and who were they written for? And we'll talk a little bit about that later. But that the earliest believers, that the early church was predominantly Jewish, that early Christianity was a Jewish Christianity as opposed to a Greek Christianity. That is an important point to try to remember. <clears throat> so let me just talk really briefly about the Gospel of Mark so that you do have a little bit of a, a, an understanding about our first Gospel. Uh, so Mark is the earliest Gospel, and as I said, probably AD 60 when it was written. Uh, the sh it's the shortest Gospel, and it's the simplest. And by simple, I mean that it is without much literary embellishment. Yes? I don't really catch. Uh, you said earlier, earlier church of Greek culture. Yes. Right. Now you said earlier Christian and Jewish thing. Yes. So, uh, if you can recall uh, in Paul's letters, there's uh, in Acts, Paul has some interactions with Peter, uh, where Peter was uh, wanting to go uh, minister w with uh, Greek Christian believers who were culturally Greek, and then he caught some flack from the Jewish believers. There was, you know, battles over circumcision. Paul talks, but Peter deals with that. Paul talks about that in Galatians. So the earliest church was a mix. Uh, well, the early church was a mix of Jewish believers and Greek believers, meaning culturally, culturally Jewish, culturally Greek. How they were raised, their cultural norms, uh, yeah, the way that they ate meals together, the way that they uh, related to their elders, different, different. Um, and what the good, solid 
conservative scholarship has found, and this is going to be mostly Hurtado's work, is that the earliest church, that first generation of believers, was almost exclusively Jewish in culture. And this is going to be hugely important. Uh, that is going to kind of feed into all of the different apologetics, if you will, that we talk about in defending the resurrection. Because the way in which kind of liberal scholarship is able to stifle this belief in a real resurrection, it, it all begins with, it all hinges on having Christ, earliest Christianity be a Greek, culturally Greek Christianity. Um, they sort of need that to be true um, in order for their hypotheses as to why people said all this stuff uh, to be true. Do you understand? Good. Yes? You talked about Jesus' life and how, I mean, the crux of his re- resurrection, and he raised people from the dead in public, mm-hmm. like Lazarus. Yes. It was public. Yes. And he went in and raised a little girl. Yes. You know, so he already proved that he could conquer death. Right. You know, of course, the disciples didn't get it and all that, but he constantly said, who do you say I am? The Jews wanted to stone him because he said, I am. Just like Moses said, who, who sent me? Or should I say something? I am. Mm-hmm. It was a, a word they, they couldn't even say. Right. And he's proclaiming all this time to be God. Yes. And who are you saying? Asking them questions. Right. So to me, for him to do these things was setting up for some to believe, yes. Of course, they still doubted because it was such a mammoth thing. Correct. And w- you're, no, you're right. And But what we're discussing right now is, so it's, it's not... The validity of those individual stories. It's the story itself. When was that story told? Somebody had to tell the story about Lazarus. It wasn't written. Again, we don't have a written, uh, either a letter from Paul or a, a, a part of a gospel from AD 34 or AD 35. The, like I said, Paul's earliest gospel is maybe 50, 51, 52. The earliest gospel is 60. So what was going on with that story about Lazarus for 20 years? That's what scholars are trying to figure out. That's, that's kind of what we're talking about. Somebody, people had to orally say, hey, let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. Do you know that he raised a man from the dead once, Lazarus, so on and so forth. That story, before it was ever written down, was told and told and told and told. So Romans, Paul, right? So a lot of those were written down. Correct. Later on. Correct. Correct. And we'll find with... Even within 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 so the gospel of Mark, and we're about to get yeti. Well, no, we don't have a mini, original manuscript, so we do. There is. Anyway. We'll get we'll get to it. <clears throat> so Mark's gospel uh, is simple; it's without a lot of uh, literary embellishment. I'm not going to take the time to kind of show you because I don't have the time to do it. But if I pulled up uh, uh, a section of Mark, any section of Mark, not just the resurrection narrative, any section of Mark, compared to with say a section of Luke or John. There's a lot more information in Luke and John. Mark is, is sort of a very rapid sort of a pace. Jesus showed up, Jesus said this, and then Jesus left. Where in John you might find Jesus showed up and he said this because people were thinking this at the time. And so when somebody said that, and then Jesus responded, Jesus responded in that way. We don't find that in Mark. And <clears throat> well, let me read a little bit. Mark's simplicity aligns easily with an accurate historical retelling and goes against a Hellenistic tradition of hero worship in which fantastical embellishments were commonplace. I have a little note here. See the apocryphal Gnostic text, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas. Don't have time to really get into what 
that means apocryphal Gnostic, know that there were other Gospels other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They existed. They were written much later. We can't accurately date them. They were not written uh, in and around either Rome or the Near East. Almost most of them are written in Egypt. Um, they were written late, and they have what. So what, when we talk about these liberal, liberal scholars, they have the characteristics that the liberal scholars are so trying to, so hard to try to find in in the canonical gospels. They have overwhelmingly Greek. Uh, 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 Look and feel and sound to them, and if you so if you took the time to look at the Gospel of Peter, look at the Gospel of Thomas, you would they don't sound or look or feel anything like our Gospels. Um, <clears throat> um, and and so Mark, even more than the other Gospels, is the sort of polar opposite um, of that. So Mark's Gospel is based on the testimony of Peter. Again, an important point that you want to 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 kind of have at the ready to understand. Um, that Peter uh, obviously was arguably Jesus' closest uh, confidant, uh, with the exception of maybe one or two other of his apostles. He traveled with Jesus throughout the whole ministry. He was there for everything. He saw everything, and he traveled with John Mark. Um, he told John Mark, again, what's going on during this 17, 20-year period before anything is written down. Peter is going out and preaching and, and building up the church and teaching people these stories and telling his closest uh, supporters and, and people that are with him, John Mark being one of them, this gospel story, this story of Jesus. <clears throat> um, and so this, it, it, and the scholars believe that this helps explain Mark's uh, sort of seemingly non-chronological structure. Uh, certain, like Luke's gospel has a very sort of a set structure to it that follows a, good, a solid chronological pattern. Mark's doesn't seem to do that. Scholars feel that would, is congruent with, uh, rather than, so Mark didn't see it himself. He's not coming into it with his own memories and saying, oh, I remember exactly how this played out. He is recounting the, Peter's story and the way that Peter gave it to him. Uh, again, this is their hypothesis. Um, and that's sort of the, one of the, the, the strongest pieces of evidence for both the authorship of Mark. Mark really did write the Gospel of Mark and not someone else. Again, don't have too much time to get into it, but that's another whole field of saying, well, they didn't, Mark didn't write Mark, Matthew didn't write Matthew. There were, there's, you know, scholars who focus just on that. <laughs> uh, uh, Papias of Hierapolis, so early church father, Bishop of Hierapolis, um, 80, 60, it was lifespan 80, 60 to 130. So as a young man, um, Papias would know, have been in contact with people who, when they were very young, <coughs> either maybe saw Jesus himself or certainly interacted with people who traveled with Jesus. So we say that Papias is one generation removed from eyewitness testimony. Uh, Papias of Heropolis confirms both the authorship of Mark, that Mark wrote Mark, and his using of Peter's testimony as the foundation of his gospel. And um, the ancient historian Eusebius writes uh, this, and the elder, who we believe to be John, the elder, John, said this, Mark became an interpreter of Peter, as many things as he remembered, he wrote down accurately, most certainly not in order, the things said or done by the Lord. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but he came later, as he said, with reference to Peter, who taught whenever the need arose. But he did not teach according to the arrangement of the oracles of the Lord, with the result that Mark did not err, when he thus wrote certain things as he recalled them. For he planned out one goal ahead of time, namely to leave out nothing which he heard, and not to falsify any of the words of Peter. So... Why do we think? You know, why do we say? Okay, we we have a sort of a reliable reason to believe that Mark was written by Mark, and that Mark uh, is Peter's gospel. 
this would be one solid piece of evidence for why we say that. So I'm going to transition out of Mark for a minute, out of sort of the the introductory kind of remarks. Talk a little bit about Messiah figures in the first century because this is an important, again, an important piece of the apologetic puzzle that we're building. The point of this class is really to get you to walk away today saying, I can go into a conversation with somebody who says, the resurrection is bunk, and hopefully have a couple things to say. I mean, obviously, there's a lot here. I've spent you know, 10 years studying this stuff and I'm really only just scratching the surface. But still, I do think that we can accomplish this morning having a couple solid bullet points to say, here's a couple, here's some food for thought. Here's some things to think about why we believe what we believe. And so understanding that Jesus was not the first Messiah figure during the Second Temple period, very important. Um, so the first stories of Jesus transmitted, committed to memory, were oral histories. These Jesus was spoken about by the apostles, by the early church, orally, long before anything was written down. Um, AD 33 to 50, so Jesus' death to about AD 50, the church of Jesus is thriving in Jerusalem and then surrounding territories and to Samaria, eventually spreading to Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and even Europe later, parts of Italy, Spain, the islands, and the Mediterranean. <clears throat> However, the first canonical written words about Jesus, and I already covered this, um, arrived with Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, probably AD 50, and the Gospel of Mark in AD 60. A, a majority of ancient... Uh, Historians, liberal historians, agree that cultures featuring orally transmitted history are ripe settings for slow, gradual changes to those oral histories, often allowing for hero legend traditions to be established and perpetuated. Different stories about Jesus are told and retold so much that eventually each individual story begins to fall into a distinct form. Again, just sort of rehashing a little bit of what I already covered. Um, and again, this that process is dependent on time. They need the Gospels to be, you need the, a late date for Paul's letters for the Gospels to sort of uh, uh, to explain that. Um, Jesus was not the first messianic figure, rec- figure recognized in first century Second Temple Jewish history. Judas, son of Hezekiah, four BC, led an in- insurrection against Roman authority. He was heralded as a Messiah, meaning the Israelites saw him as uh, the figure that they had been waiting for. That uh, and again, this is a, sort of a discipline unto itself, but. Studying the hopes and expectations of the Jewish people after the exile, they leave Babylon, they come back to Israel, they build the temple, and now they're sort of waiting. (laughs) They're in this mode of waiting, they're waiting for a Messiah to come, they're waiting for someone to come and put down Roman rule for God to be exalted, and it's in this waiting, and it's in this expectation that some other figures arose, and they said, you know, maybe this is the person we've been waiting for, and uh, Judas was the first John the Baptist. A lot of people think, well, what are we talking about? John the Baptist, he's sort of like pals with Jesus. This is not, uh, it's, it's something we're thinking about because it doesn't jump right off the page. But John and Jesus, are there's a connection when they're in the womb together. Jesus comes to John and is baptized. But you should remember that John's ministry was distinct from Jesus. He had his own followers, he had his own locale, location, and he had a, a very, very strong following. They knew about Jesus, maybe they even thought, oh, Jesus, is, these guys are connected, they're buddies, they're pals. I can, I can kind of like Jesus too, but John's my guy. You know, I'm going to stick with John, I'm not going to leave John now and follow Jesus. John was seen as a prophetic, messianic figure to his followers. And then finally, uh, after... Some years after, a man named Simon ben Kosiba, um, later known as Simon bar Kokhba, son of Kosiba or Kokhba, uh, was proclaimed to be God's anointed Messiah 
by Rabbi Akiva and led a four-year rebellion against Roman rule until his movement's crushing defeat under Hadrian in AD 136. Again, Rome came and, cr- and crushed him. Why, are, why is it important to know that these uh, men were roughly contemporaries of Jesus? Well, that's because after they died, their individual movements died with them. There was no lasting cult worship. Cult here, again, is a word, uh, lowercase c. I don't mean modern-day cults the way we think of them. Cult worship was just a way of saying that, uh, that a sort of almost like a religion formed around uh, uh, an individual. The fastest-growing cult worship in the first century was the Roman, the emperor, the Caesar cult uh, worship of Caesar as, um, as, uh, as God. Um, so that's what I mean there by, uh, by cult worship. So there was no lasting cult worship of these other individuals. No claims of resurrection, nor even spiritual visions or visitations, and certainly no lasting exaltation. So here's the point, right? Here's the question that we should ask ourselves. Here's where this sort of the, 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 the defense of the resurrection comes in. If, as liberal scholarship wants to believe, Jesus' stories developed slowly over time through oral tradition, and no element of a fundamental truth is needed to kick the. You know, they're saying we don't. You, obviously, he didn't really. He wasn't really raised from the dead. You don't need that to get this tradition started. Uh, it, it, the truth is not needed to kick the stories off into a cycle of change and embellishment. Why didn't similar fictional oral traditions arise around the other Messiah figures of the first century Second Temple period? Scholars don't have a good explanation for this. What was it about Jesus? Because again, they're starting with the assumption that Jesus was the same as these other fellows. They don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. To them, Jesus and Judas and John the Baptist and Simon ben Kosiba are all uh, uh, charismatic cultural slash political leaders who had strong followings who challenged Roman rule, some militarily, some philosophically. What is it about Jesus that caused, not only for his sort of story not to die out, but to quite to do the opposite, to have an immediate uh, uh, acknowledgement of him as Lord? Again, we call this high Christology. Not just, he was a great guy, we remember him. We have not, no, he was God's son. He was the Lord uh, very early on, and then have that take over, not just their local population, but then to explode across the, mid, across the Near East, across the, Rome, across the Roman Empire. What went on with Jesus that didn't go on with these other figures? That when they died, that was it. People packed their bags and went home. We say, obviously, something different did happen with Jesus, and that is that Jesus rose from the dead. The people saw him uh, raised from the dead, that they talked to people who saw him, and that this was something that people believed. They knew that this wasn't just a hoax. Um, And so that's why it's important to familiarize yourself with the Messiah figure, if you will, in the first century, to understand that there were uh, a number of them and that none of them had any sort of following after they died, and yet Jesus' following explodes and transforms the entire Roman Empire, transforms the entire world. Peter, yeah. isn't it true also that when he rose from the dead, he just didn't reveal himself to a couple of people? Mm-hmm. Wasn't he seen by four or five hundred people yes. during that time? Yes. Correct. Yes. Does the dating of the epistles and the gospels suggest that 
the stories about Jesus weren't changing over time, Correct. not enough time had passed for them to have changed? Correct, yeah, liberal scholars, liberal scholars who are intellectually honest would say, like they would say, yes, I concede to you that if this letter was really written at this time, or if this gospel was really written at this time, no, there was not enough time to have this sort of hero, legendary kind of development takes place. They, they concede that point. They would simply say, I just don't think it was written that early. Um, and, and they stick to that. You know, they hold to that. <clears throat> so now we'll just talk a little bit about Richard Vaughn and an eyewitness testimony. Again, this is an important sort of apologetical point to understanding uh, what you know, we believe in the resurrection. Why do we believe in it? Why do we think it's historical? Bauckham uh, teaches at St. Andrews. He's an excellent biblical scholar, Old Testament, New Testament. He, 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 he has his hands in a lot of areas, but you know, he maybe perhaps found his calling in focusing specifically on the eyewitness testimony in the Gospels. And so I can maybe lean a little bit more on the bullet points because I was able to write it out in somewhat of a concise way. Bauckham suggests that the Gospels are a kind of historiography known as testimony. Remember I was saying before, what are the Gospels? We have to first establish what are these things as literary works, and why is that important to understanding the resurrection? He feels more than anything that we should think of them as testimonies. And I'm talking almost in a, in a, in a forensic, kind of a law court sense, that these are the official recordings of things that people saw and the things that Jesus did. He feels that that is the most historically accurate way of treating those documents. Testimony, he feels, enables us to read the Gospels in both historical and theological ways. Uh, that They were written so that we would infer both historical fact from them and theological significance from them. Bauckham's views are much different from the views of those who have been influenced by form criticism. Those influenced by form criticism assume that there was a long, anonymous transmission of traditions from the time of the eyewitnesses to the time the Gospels were written. Those who hold this view may disagree about whether the traditions were carefully preserved or heavily adapted, but they agree that eyewitness testimony had little direct connection uh, with what was written down in the Gospels. Obviously, Bauckham strongly disagrees with this and feels that the Gospel writers received not just fish stories, if you will, that sort of classic, like, oh, I caught a fish, it was five, it was just, uh, I think it was 50 pounds. That's not what the gospel writers were receiving and saying, oh, that's interesting, let me write that down. That they received eyewitness official testimony that was, uh, that was transmitted orally for <laughs> almost 20 years faithfully for the purpose of, 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 of faithfully... Uh, uh, maintaining the truth about Jesus, the truth about the, the work of his church, and, and a sort of the expansion of that church. Um, and uh, in, in regard to this assumption that the liberal, liberal scholarship takes, uh, Bauckham says that there's a simple and obvious problem with that assumption. It assumes that eyewitness, the eyewitnesses vanished immediately after Jesus' ministry. Accepting the commonly held dates of the Gospels, however, means the evangelists were writing about events within living memory. Again, an important point. If a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old was there and saw the risen Jesus, and that individual lived to 60 or 70 or 80 years old and told people about what he saw, uh, the, this, the, the window in which we say, this is the window where we have reliable eyewitness testimony is much bigger than liberal scholarship kind of wants. They want to say it's, it's just very little tiny. Basically, Jesus was seen by like three 90-year-olds and then they died like the next day. You know, <laughs> no. No, that's not what happened. You see by many people, some very young. 
and they live their whole lives saying, "Yeah, I, I, I saw him. I see he was he was dead on a cross, and then I saw him alive later." Um, some characters, and again, I'm going to touch a little bit on some of his more specific kind of the specific points he makes. So, some characters in the Gospels. Um, are named while others are not. So Bauckham, as a scholar, would, is putting forth the argument that that is significant, um, that some characters in the Gospels are named while others are not. Bauckham proposes uh, that, that, uh, that those characters who are named were eyewitnesses who originated the traditions to which their names are attached and conti- continue to tell their stories as authoritative guarantors of their traditions. The evangelists may have known these uh, eyewitnesses in some cases. So Again, if you're presupposing that the Gospels are made up and you're thinking somebody sat down and wrote a lie, this is, this is their assumption. And this is what we're sort of arguing against. Why does it take the literary form? But why is he saying, oh, so I went there and, and a random man did this and a random man did that. But then Paul, who was the son of Mark, said, said this. It doesn't make sense if the whole thing is made up. You would either invent names for everybody, or you would invent names for nobody. For nobody, but that's not what we find. We find, and it cross. Now, of course, there is some variation between Mark and Matthew and Luke, but there's there is a lot of agreement where you would have sort of unnamed person, unnamed person, and then a very, a very specific named person, men, women, so on and so forth. And Richard Bauckham is saying that's not by accident. That's because when these stories were told. The people, the, the eyewitnesses who are faithfully retelling these stories, said, "Yeah, we don't, we don't remember who that person's name was. And Jesus healed somebody. We don't remember that name. But then, when he went and talked to so and so, we know that it was this person, and so on and so forth. So, names, why they are there versus not there, becomes hugely important in in saying this is really eyewitness testimony or it isn't." <clears throat> Public figures, John the Baptist, Herod, Herodias, Caiaphas, Pilate, and the disciples of Jesus are usually named. Those who are healed by Jesus or encounter Jesus on only one occasion are usually unnamed. And that's because, that again, this rings as true historically. They weren't superhumans. They were normal people. So they maybe did forget some things. They maybe forgot. I don't remember exactly the name of that person that was you know, there when Jesus was walking that day and healed that person. But I certainly remember these other things. Uh, again, it, is, it, 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 it kind of falls in line with things that ring as historically accurate and true and fly against this idea of, well, this was, this was manufactured. If things were manufactured, Bauckham is arguing they should look different. They shouldn't look like this then. I also think it's um, it's good to think about that too because I feel like a lot of times we think about the Bible as like these men sat down and then the Holy Spirit came and like sprinkled sprinkled something over their head and then they like just vigorously were writing with their eyes closed and the Holy Spirit like that's not what happened. Obviously, we know that the Holy Spirit and God they were involved in in making what. happened on paper happened but it was also actually really something that was happening it's not like a fairy tale I feel like sometimes we we even as Christians think about it as like this fairy tale thing that happened like oh and then the bible like fell down from heaven and now we read it like no it actually was real stuff that was happening right And the last bullet point, the synoptics, uh, uh, and this is something that Greg hit on. Greg did a good job of incorporating this into his sermon, but it is a big part of resurrection apologetics. The women at the tomb is hugely problematic, as Greg adequately pointed out, hugely problematic for liberal 
Bible scholarship that wants to say, well, these are stories that developed over a long period of time. They were made up whole cloth. Jesus certainly didn't rise from the dead. He was either, maybe somebody stole his body, or maybe that whole thing about the tomb being empty, that's just a hoax, and the tomb is still there, and there's somebody that's still in it. Um, There's a huge problem with having the the, the women at the tomb uh, be the only eyewitnesses to Jesus' actual resurrection. Uh, and yes. Yes. What's that? Yes. Because at the tomb. Right. So if if you are, as Greg said, so if you're making this story up and you want people to take this story seriously, and guess what? People did take the story seriously because Christianity, again, exploded across the Roman Empire. By AD 300, it has become the official religion of the Roman Empire. So not only were they, if men really, if, you know, these are the smartest men that's ever existed if somebody made this up. You know. One of the guys, Peter. Peter and John. Yeah, but one went in at the tomb. They weren't the first, though. The women came back and told them, and then they ran. And then they ran to the empty tomb. No, he's saying that the women were the first to, to, to see the risen yeah. Jesus. Yeah. So let's. So, so here's the argument. Let's assume that that's, this is a lie. That Jesus didn't raise from the dead because people aren't raised from the dead. And I'm. But I want people to believe this lie. And I'm going to now try to sell this lie to people. I'm not going to make the only eyewitnesses to Jesus in the tomb women. Because women didn't have any legal status. Women, uh, again, as Greg pointed out, were just legally, culturally, <laughs> at every level, were seen as inferior, were, were seen as unimportant. Uh, and, you wouldn't use them as credible. You wouldn't use, they were not credible witnesses, correct. So, and yet, that's what we have in all the gospel accounts, is that it was the women who followed Jesus who saw them first. There is no logical reason to, manu- to, to, to make up that point. It makes no. It is it, hurting their argument. It is even damning their argument in the ancient world. Um, and again, scholarship that would that would that would assume that this is a hoax cannot grapple with this point well. They they cannot grapple with this point well. They uh, they of course think that they are, and they they, they carry themselves as if they are. But this is a, this is a problematic point for them. Um, and I, and I will, the bullet point will give you some, some more uh, actual verses to look at in all, in all of the gospels. The reason I put that in there is because there are certain stories in the gospels that don't agree among all the other gospels, and then other stories that do. And all four gospels uh, support and attest to the women being the only people to see Jesus in the tomb. Again, that's important, and we don't really have time to get into that, but if we were doing uh, studying, for example, uh, variation in the synoptics or something like that, we would say, well, here are the stories that uh, exist in all three of the synoptic gospels and John, and here are some stories that don't, and then, of course, scholars jump on that and say, oh, that didn't, you know, that couldn't have happened because there's not agreement. Well, guess what? There's agreement on this. Um, yes. So, we're going to jump out of Bauckham for a minute and talk about N.T. Wright real quickly. Uh, so as I said, N.T. Wright really doesn't focus on one area of, uh, of, of Second Temple history, of the history of the resurrection, of the historicity of Jesus. He really, this is, uh, you know, an idea. the font is very small. And this is, and in the previous volume it was fatter than this and he was talking about, again, Jesus' ministry. So uh, Wright is, does an unbelievable job of reading um, 
the historicity, the historical accuracy and reliability of the resurrection. And uh, there are a couple kind of key points that he makes that I, I, think, I think it's good for us to know about. Um, so Christian theology uh, of the afterlife mutates from multiple views in Judaism. So this is, I wrote this a little bit differently. It's sort of, N.T. Wright basically says, after Jesus died, Let's just assume for a minute that he wasn't raised from the dead. We know that he lived. We know that he died. Now we're asking the question, did he, well, did he really rise from the dead? Let's look at where, where this happened. So that happened in Israel. Uh, his followers were Israelites. Let's look at the things that they believed before Jesus' death. And then what we know that they believed after Jesus' death because we have the Bible. We have these written works. We have these traditions that were preserved. And they represent what people were saying and believing. And so what right now is going to of a laundry list of radical, a radical, radically different understanding of, 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 of themselves, of what they believe, of what they think about life. So uh, the theology of the afterlife, completely different uh, before, the, before Jesus' death and after, where in, in Jewish thought, um, the Pharisees thought something very different from the Sadducees, which thought something very different from the Essenes, which thought something different from the, the average Jewish person. And you have, of course, those that didn't follow Jesus continued in that, those variations. But yet, after the resurrection, there's now this large contingent which has this very focused and defined view of the afterlife, which is very different from what it was before. Wright is asking the question, how do you explain that if there is no resurrection? Um, the importance of the resurrection as a whole completely changes. Uh, again, so for example, Jesus often talks to the Pharisees, sometimes to the Sadducees. A lot of people don't know this. Pharisees, even though they're painted as the bad guys in the Gospels, really theologically fell, fell closer to, to, what we, to what we would understand theologically. The, the Pharisees believed in a bodily resurrection. We're looking forward to a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees did not, for example. Um, <clears throat> the timing of the resurrection changes from judgment, so, so the expectation of when this resurrection will occur changes uh, radically to where we think that the, 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 there will be one uh, resurrection at the end. All of a sudden, people are start talking about, Paul talks about first, for First Corinthians, Jesus already being raised and us being raised with him and he being the first fruits. Why was he saying this? This is very different. This is, not, this is radically different from anything that in Jewish literature you can find in the Old Testament. This is different. Um, <clears throat> uh, if the early Christian church wanted to communicate that Jesus was special, despite his shameful death on the cross, they would have made up a story using existing Jewish con- concepts of exaltation. So N.T. Wright points out that there was already a tradition of... of, of uh, of exalting and honoring uh, p- uh, figures who had uh, had died and passed uh, and were gone, but that's not what goes on with Jesus. They're speaking about him differently. They're speaking about him as though he is alive. He's been raised. He's reigning. He's our Lord. This is novel. This is new. This is not something that this is not something that has existed with Elijah or with any of these other figures. <clears throat> uh, the early church became extremely reckless about sickness and death and the way that they do ministry. Uh, they were taking care of people with communicable diseases and testifying about their faith in the face of torture and execution. Most Christians are familiar with the persecution that the early church went through um, in both the local area and in all, all the Roman provinces. Uh, if the resurrection never happened, if this is just a hoax, why were people dying for a hoax? Why were people ministering to leper colonies? Why were people risking disease and death 
and torture if this was just a made-up story? What could cause people within a few years to be willing to to die for their faith? Uh, because we know that the, the Roman Empire almost always offered them... I actually have water, thank you. We know that they offered them a way out. Uh, there wasn't a zero-sum game. They almost were always offered the... Uh, the opportunity to recant their faith in Jesus. Um, and that's something that's car- that carried through through the centuries. But it, it started back then. They didn't recant. You know, they didn't... And why didn't they do that? Think about it. If you're in that position, even if you're a follower... I mean, I think about it today. I love Jesus. I think he knows that. If somebody had a gun to my family's head, I might say, you know what? I'm just going to recant to them. But in my heart, I don't really mean it. God knows that, right? They didn't do that. They didn't do that. Why, why didn't they do that? Because it was, yes. Did you have a question? I'm sorry. Okay. Well, they didn't do that because they believed it to be real. How do you get a group of people to believe that that is real if it's not true? Yes. I think, at least in my mind, I've always drawn a distinction there. Because it is possible that someone was willing to be martyred because they were deceived. That is, like, it's true. Human point of view, that's true. But Peter was martyred. Mm-hmm. James was martyred. John spent his life in prison. If it was a hoax, it was a hoax that they created. Right. So it wasn't possible for them. I always draw that distinction between yeah. the martyrdom of the eyewitnesses and the martyrdom of everybody else. Because everybody else is at least theoretically possible that they were deceived. Yep. Those guys saw it. It was a hoax. It was their hoax. Correct. And, uh, you know, you say, you know, we have some examples of people, who, uh, Jonestown and uh, certain cults, you say, well, th- th- that's possible. Again, when you're comparing the scale of those instances, it's minuscule to a faith that, 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 that explodes across a, a community that has, as we're going to see in the last section, that's why I'm ending on it, a very defined faith. Um, so this isn't a group of 20 or 30 people that, you know, a cult of 20 or 30 or even 100 or 200 or a few hundred like Jonestown was. This is a widespread faith that is growing among people in a joyous way that they're going out into the communities, that they're affecting their communities, they're ministering to people, they're feeding people, they're loving people. Again, this wasn't a, the early church wasn't cloistered so much as it is today, uh, that this was a, a movement that uh, and I don't talk about it, but uh, Tacitus and, and, and different, we have uh, written uh, recollections from certain Roman officials, emperors, uh, historians. Oh, you know, those gosh darn Christians are such an annoyance. And no matter what we seem to do to them, you know, they don't stop. And so we, I could have spent some time talking about that. It's not that pertinent to the resurrection, which is why I didn't include it. But again, that's just more historical evidence where you have a Roman. Uh, you know, uh, you know, prefect writing a letter to the emperor saying, "I don't know what to do with these, you know, these gosh darn Christians." You know, you know, so again, all this is all—it's all evidence. Um, uh, the Gospels, especially, and uh, I mentioned this because even though I talked about it earlier, right, uh, definitely gives Mark a lot of treatment, talking about uh, the simplicity of Mark and how that aligns with an historically accurate account. No embellishment, no time for you know, sort of a, a literary uh, um, tradition of, of, uh, of embellishment and fantastical kind of uh, details to emerge. Um, and Wright does, again, spend a lot of time on the story of the women who were the first witnesses to the empty tomb. Cannot have been invented because the testimony of women was inadmissible under all those, almost all uh, circumstances. So Wright does an excellent job of painting a picture of a, of a culture, of an entire culture, that looked a certain way, believed a certain thing, 
uh, and then within a span of a few years, looks radically different, believes something radically different, and then he raises a question, how do you get a culture to do this? How do you get something like this to transform if there isn't an empty tomb? If there weren't people who are saying, I saw him alive, and I really believe it. I really mean what I say. Uh, right, like Balkum argues, you you can't get there. We, I cannot, as a, as, a, as a historian, I cannot tell you in good faith that I can explain this to you uh, if, the, if, the, if, the, if the resurrection didn't really happen, if people didn't really believe this. And we are running out of time, but I do want to tell you about Larry Hurtado because I think his scholarship is excellent, and I think that this is a really important point uh, in your ability to kind of understand the resurrection and understand why we believe it to be true. Um, <clears throat> so Hurtado... Uh, scholarship focuses on the, uh, Christ, the Christ, uh, Christology, an early Christology and a high Christology. So again, I explained to you earlier that Christology, high Christology means that there was an early and, 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 and significant belief that Jesus was divine, that Jesus was Lord, that he was worshipped as Lord, that he wasn't seen as uh, just a, a nice guy, uh, a, a traveling sage, uh, that, that he wasn't talked about that way. Early high Christology, early high acknowledgement of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Lord, and of this idea of bi-theism. And I'll talk a little bit about that really quickly, and then we'll end. So uh, there's a thing in, in Judaism called the Shema, and I won't read that to you in it, but this is the Shema in, in Hebrew. And what it translates to is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Shema forms the backbone of Jewish identity for a thousand years. Judaism is fiercely, fiercely monotheistic. This is what you see when you look at the Exodus, when you read through the Old Testament, Exodus, exile, so on and so forth. The entire identity of a people who went through a thousand years of trial and tribulation, their entire identity is built on this idea that God is one. There is one God. And, and, and that is sort of amplified by the fact that Israel was for all that time surrounded by nations that didn't have uh, uh, another uh, a form of monotheism, overwhelmingly pagan. The Samaritans a little bit. The Samaritans had something very close to monotheism, but for the most part it's overwhelmingly pagan. The monotheism of Israel is fiercely held, regionally unique and defining and historically untarnished. There wasn't a point in Israel's history where they ever compromised on this point. For a thousand years, it did not compromise on this point, obviously. I mean, you could go back to, you know, where they chose to uh, worship the calf, you know, right after Moses you know, takes them out of Egypt. But in between those two points, this is, this is, this is one thing that holds true. Um, the, and the earliest Christian communities arising primarily after, so Peter gives a sermon on Pentecost, um, these earliest Christian communities are Jewish in composition. This is something I mentioned earlier, and this is hugely important. They're Jewish in composition, being made up of mostly native Israelites in and around Jerusalem, as well as diaspora Jews, diaspora Hebrews. So diaspora means uh, the, 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 the outgathering. The, the out it means that the Jewish people who were culturally Jewish uh, that were living in places other than in and around Jerusalem and Israel itself, they had traveled out and were living in other places, but they observed Torah. They observed the laws. They observed the eating laws. They observed the festivals. They would be traveling back. That's how they would have heard Peter's sermon. They travel back to the temple. They travel back to Jerusalem for the, their, their, their main uh, festivals and feasts. Um, 
And this truth that the earliest church <clears throat> is overwhelmingly uh, Jewish as opposed to Greek, and I talked about this earlier, it lies in stark opposition to, again, this liberal scholarship that says that it wasn't that way, that when the Christian church started to form, it was basically Greek. It was Paul, and it was Paul going out to, to Thessalonica and to Corinth and to Ephesus, and that's where the church really took form. And what was going on in Jerusalem early on was muddled and not defined and uh, and not a, a solid base, the, 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 ba- the solid foundation of the church that spread out from there. Paul is the base. The Hellenistic Greek Christian is the base. And then Christianity explodes into the Roman Empire from that base, not from Jerusalem. Hurtado does an excellent job of saying, no, not the case. The earliest Christian believers, the earliest church are overwhelmingly Jewish. And it's from that that Paul says, all right, here's James, here is Peter. They've done great work here with the Jewish church. I'm going to go now and, and reach these Greek communities. <clears throat> um, Hurtado establishes, primarily through Paul's letters, Pauline scholarship, a very early, very high Christology, or acknowledgement and worshiping of Jesus as Lord and Messiah. Indeed, this early Jewish Christianity almost instantly adopts a bi-theistic, so two God's tradition of recognizing both God and Jesus as Lord. So obviously we have a very defined Trinitarian Christ. Today we talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This has been something that has existed for a long time. But in the earliest church, not a whole lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, but what Hurtado finds is that the earliest believers were saying, there is God, he's God, he's been the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there is his son Jesus. He is Lord, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead. He's God's son, he is our Lord, our faith is in him. And you have that by that acknowledgement of God and Jesus, Hurtado argues, very early, almost very early, a couple years after Jesus' resurrection. Now, this suggestion, that truth, is a complete defilement of that Shema that I read to you earlier. It is a complete and utter abandonment and defilement of of, of Jewish uh, core identity. Um, it's a defilement of the Shema, the defining Jewish statement and identity spanning over a thousand years. Yes. Father are one, and that biphasism would be more of an invitation to say, there's this God here and this other God over here. So it seems like it's conceptually different. Yeah, no, they, they weren't, they, they, you know, you are correct. Um, and again, if I had more time, I, I would focus a little bit more on that. But no, they were not, it wasn't that they were separate gods, but that they were acknowledging two separate persons. That the, the, the sort of the, the, or the earliest traces of a Trinitarian understanding of God, of God as, as being one in, in three persons, happens very early with G- and, and, and scholarship focuses on um, within Paul's letters or see, Paul seems to be transporting uh, hymns that people had sung into his letters uh, refrains or phrases that were repeated back to one another and within those hymns and within those refrains that Paul incorporates into his letters it's this high we call it high Christology and so Hurtado is saying the fact that Paul is comfortably including these hymns, including these refrains, in a letter written in 50 AD suggests to me that this Christology, this high Christology, this high view of Jesus, had to have already been formed prior to AD 50. So and if, and if it's prior to AD 50 and Jesus doesn't die until AD 33, now you have, within the lifetime of these eyewitnesses, a very high Christology. How do you get that? And this is sort of the main point that Hurtado makes. Hurtado is basically arguing... Historians cannot explain how you get a, a Jewish people to abandon their core belief 
almost instantaneously if this is a hoax. If, there, if, if Jesus didn't, was not raised from the dead, if people didn't see him raised from the dead, there is no way that you get Jewish people to abandon the thing that defined them as a people for a thousand years. They would have rejected it. They would have rejected it outright. It would have been a fringe movement with a few followers. It would have died out, like the followers of these other messianic figures in the first century. It would not have exploded through Jerusalem and exploded through uh, Asia Minor and extended eventually into all of the Roman Empire. It just wouldn't have done it. It would not have been able to withstand that scrutiny if it's not true. So that's Hurtado. Um, I feel like we did an okay job of kind of touching on the history of scholars. I brought the books so you, you, know, you can see it for yourself. They're definitely worth picking up and reading. I think these two specifically are anybody could pick them up and read them. Hurtados and Bauckham's. Anybody could, could read it. I think you'd do okay with it. Right? I'm not going to lie to you. I think you should still read it, but you'll, you're going to struggle through big chunks of it. This particular uh, work, Wright is really writing for other scholars. He's in conversation with other scholars. He doesn't really have the average layperson in mind. There's going to be a lot of Greek in it, a lot of Hebrew, and a lot of stuff that might be over your head, but it's still a great resource, and it's still worth reading. So I hope, now if there are any questions, I mean, yes, go ahead. Yeah. What would be the exactly period? Because we are talking about period historical, right? To make sure there is racism. But what would be for Jesus Christ period and famine? This perfect, this, this whole time. Maybe I can figure out. Because when we bring gospel in like the United States, Historically, it's different to and here, like in all the country. Mm-hmm. So this is the first question I want to figure out. Before all this stuff, is something that I like to talk. It's one thing. The second thing is that uh, the resurrection is the core of gospel, right? And this is one fundamental thing in Muslim countries, if I am from this country. The resurrection for Islamic people, they don't believe. And they turn around, they said, Jesus didn't die. Right? right. And it's what Paul said. Because it isn't Jesus died, that means this rose. But they believe Jesus was a famous prophet like Muhammad. Right. Yeah, but they didn't recognize that Jesus died. This is one thing. And because the way we are going to present gospel in uh, in all the countries, like animists in our own country, all these people are believers. But one fundamental thing, they don't know after death. That's it. This is where most of Christians are from animism. Mm-hmm. But for Muslim, when after death, what they say, they say, okay, what we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So this is... And don't you find it curious that I, I, I spent a lot of time talking about how the resurrection really is the most important point. That when you look at the life of Jesus or the life of Isa, as a Muslim might have recognized him, uh, you know they they would be interested in that life, in that teaching, in his childhood, and in his youth, and in his ministry. Uh, but then you're right, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, they deny that, uh, and and it's just not part of of, of Islam. Uh, isn't it curious that the one area that they leave out 
is the one area that I've hopefully put forth a good argument today to say that it is the foundation, that without it you have, you have, you have nothing. And your first question is what, you're asking when? When the way of Muhammad and Jesus Christ, it's very historically because the way uh, we are going to present gospel in here, the study is something big different yeah. in all the countries. So that's why I want to make sure, yeah. Muhammad arises, and I don't remember the exact date, but I know for sure that it's after 300 and before 500. Uh-huh. After 380 and before 500, I can't remember if it's 350 or if it's 425. That is something I have to look up again. I forgot the exact one, but I know for sure that it's after 300 and before 500 AD. So there's at least 300 years of, of, of Christian church history that passes before uh, Muhammad is uh, born and, and, is, and is seen as a prophet. And, uh, um, well, there's a lot to be said about Muhammad in, in Islam. I don't really have the time to do that, but it is an interesting topic. Six, six century. Uh, six, six century, so five, yeah, 500. Yeah. 500. Um, is there any other questions? Again, I hope... Do you, I, I just I really hope that again this was a lot of information. I did want it to be a little bit more dumbed down than that. I wanted to have less bullet points and so on and so forth. And as I was writing it out, I really felt like I'm I feel like I'm doing more harm than good if I just say, here's a little snippet to throw at somebody who's an unbeliever and I didn't give you all those other things, I didn't give you the context to it. It was really would just been an empty point. You might Hey, what do you think? Take this, buddy. Uh, here's a little factoid for you. And if they pressed you on it, there would be nothing behind it for you to really flesh it out. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Did you have something else? Somebody's walking away? I didn't see a hand. Yes. Wouldn't mind writing down the three book? Sure. Wouldn't mind for you. Yeah. Sure.